0: To Genesis chapter 43, I invite your attention this morning to the 43rd chapter of Genesis where we'll be reading the entire chapter of Genesis 43. Oftentimes in the Lord's kind providence we enjoy a reinforcement of sorts of, uh, of one lesson or another of God's Word. This has often been the case, you Sunday school teachers have said, between what is preached in the sermon and what is taught in the Sunday school class And in this case, it is the reinforcement this morning of a lesson we learned from a different uh, perspective last Sunday evening in our studies in the book of Proverbs. Last Sunday evening, we read and heard that it is the glory of God to conceal things. And today we have the same concept again, only from a different perspective, now through the agency of Joseph, that God hides things from us. And that he does often so, perhaps more often than less, hides even himself from us is a, an important lesson for us to learn. But as we shall also come to see, that is no reason why our confidence in the Lord should be shaken. Quite the opposite. This lesson teaches us to trust him more confidently more completely, more implicitly. But before going to the Word, let us continue our practice of seeking His aid in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray for your blessing upon your Word. We acknowledge our own inability to receive its truths apart from your Holy Spirit at work in us, the same Spirit who inspired these words now to illumine them to our minds, our hearts. And to apply them to our lives. Grant this, we pray. Send Him powerfully, we ask. Open our eyes and our ears to receive Your truth. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 43, beginning at verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. Now... Jacob's command here is a bit amusing in a couple of ways. For one, he speaks as though he's sending his sons around the corner to the local grocery store. Go buy us a little food. It's an amazing understatement of the trek that they must face to get to Egypt. But it's not very difficult to get behind this, which brings us to the second way that we're amused by Jacob's simple directions. He knows better than we do that to get some more food, he's going to have to send Benjamin. Benjamin will have to go according to the command, according to the requirement of the man in Egypt. And that is beyond Jacob's ability to accept. So we have Jacob's realistic assessment of the situation here. We're out of food combined with a very unrealistic solution. Just go and get some. But reality will have to settle in, and Judah is the one who will be the instrument of dishing it out to his father. Verse 3, But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him... We will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Now Jacob still doesn't want to face reality, and so now he's going to stall by lashing out at his sons. Verse 6 Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to those questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your younger brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and and you, and also your, our little ones, I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. What we're watching now with our very eyes is the maturing process in Judah. Remember last time we saw him, at least up close and personal, he was sleeping with his daughter-in-law and then well-nigh burning her to death. Judah has come a long way. And his progress is made all the more evident by the contrast between his reasonable offer here and, you remember from last time, the unreasonable offer The outrageous outburst of Reuben last week has offered to let Jacob kill his sons if Benjamin doesn't return. At any rate, Judah will prevail with his father. And verse 11, Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a, a little honey, gum, myrrh, Pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children... I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them, and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house, slaughter an animal, and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him. And brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in. So that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. (laughs) A little bit of comedy uh, thrown in there. The Israelites Who were hearing this history from Moses while they were in the wilderness, just having come from Egypt, they would have noticed this comedy here that the brothers should be worried about the Egyptians who have everything, that they would actually seize their donkeys. They should be spying their donkeys. It sort of reminds us how provincial these brothers, these tent dwelling brothers, were compared to the Egyptians. But it also reminds us that their consciences are heavy within them. Their unconfessed sin weighs upon them the sin they committed against their brother 20 years earlier, and conscience was making a coward of them all. So, verse 19, they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, O my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks And there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we've brought it again with us. And we've brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, this is the steward now. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God And the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Now you can imagine the joy with which they received Simeon back to them. Uh, And the way that the words and actions of the stewards, uh, the steward of Joseph's house must have set their minds a little more at ease. Still, you can imagine at the same time that what they really wanted was nothing more than their brother, their grain, and the highway back home. But Joseph has some more work to do. Verse 24, And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys Father, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them, and bowed down to him to the ground. Now Joseph's mind flashes back, of course, and the sight of his brothers bowing down before him flashes back to his dream from the past. But the absence of one who was in his dream prompts him in the next question. And he inquired about their welfare and he said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another In amazement. They were amazed, of course, because as far as they knew, Joseph could not have known the order of their ages. Joseph has even more to do. He will put the brothers to yet another test by treating the other son of Rachel, his closest brother Benjamin, to a heaping, helping of hospitality to see if the brothers will treat him with the same contempt and jealousy with which they had stripped him of his cloak, thrown him into a pit, and sold him to uh, the passing band of Midianites 20 years earlier. Verse 34, Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. Several weeks ago, we considered Joseph from the perspective of typology, that is, the study of types, of pictures in the Bible that are drawn by characters and events and places of things greater than themselves. You may remember that Joseph, as we observed, is a type of Christ. He is a picture of Christ in many, many ways. Uh, The salvation, for instance, of the many nations physically by Joseph's wise provision of grain is a picture of the salvation of the nations by Christ's provision of grace. But today, Joseph is a picture of God in other ways. Among the many distinctives of the reformer Martin Luther's theology is a concept that he developed and for which he is known to this day. The concept that he called... Deus absconditus. Deus absconditus, or the hidden God. That God hides himself from his people sometimes, that he hides his ways from his people for reasons that are sufficient to him, is a commonplace in Scripture. Then, considering Joseph here and the whole interchange with his brothers, Luther saw him as a picture of God exercising that, that hiddenness from his people. We see and learn of the hidden God and the hidden Joseph, or we may call him Joseph Absconditus. In other words, in the actions of Joseph hidden from his brothers as his identity was hidden, We learn something of the way that God deals with us every day in ways that are hidden from us. In fact, in today's text, there's one man who actually intimately connects the actions of Joseph and of the hidden God in the lives of Joseph's brothers. When the brothers say to the steward of the house, Remember the money we paid for the grain last time, it showed up right back in our bags again, so we've brought it back to you. Remember what the steward said? Though it had been Joseph who put the money back in their sacks, he says, verse 23, Peace to you. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father. Has put treasure in your sacks for you. Who put it back in the sacks? Well, Joseph did. Joseph absconditus, Joseph who was hidden from them, but Scripture puts on the lips of the steward that God, the hidden God, has done it. A clear enough indication, among many other hints in the text, And the passage itself—that what we are to learn here is how God deals with His people, how He orchestrates and directs our lives, how He moves in ways that are hidden from us. And there are two sides from which to consider these providences, as we do all providences, because they're uh, all of all all providences, in fact, have two sides. There is the divine side, and there is the human side. Because it is God, of course, who is acting upon and in humans and their lives. So we have those two sides. Think with me first, then, about the divine side of these providences that meet us every moment of our lives. Remember now that that in everything that the brothers were experiencing in Egypt, and all of it, unbeknownst to them, They were experiencing what Joseph intended and what he was orchestrating behind the scenes. From the accusations to the imprisonment of their brother Simeon, from the requirement that Benjamin accompany them on their next journey, to the money appearing in their sacks, all of it, all of it was precisely planned and executed behind the scenes by Joseph. Now we wonder about this, but even the response of the steward seems to be a planned one. At Joseph's house it was planned by Joseph and the and the steward behind the scenes. Certainly the seating arrangement, seating the brothers from oldest to youngest and the quintupled portions for Benjamin at table were carefully planned. And executed behind the scenes in the mind of Joseph. So, brothers and sisters, it is with God. He is always working, always acting in absolutely everything, every detail. But from behind the scenes in ways that you and I can neither see nor tell. Which leads me to the first point on the divine side. God not only does not tell us what He is doing most of the time, in fact, He positively hides it from us. Look at Joseph. When the love of his brothers overcomes him, upon blessing Benjamin, his only brother by their mother Rachel, he cannot contain himself in verse 30, so he hides in another room to weep. God, as it were, operates from another room. He hides Himself from us. He hides His ways from us. But the fact that He is hidden from our view does not change the fact that He is working. Nor does it change the fact that He loves us so tenderly, so completely and deeply, that His heart is always with us. God's heart is, even in the most difficult things we face. Which brings me to the next point, that second, while God does not tell us what He's doing most of the time, in fact, positively hides it from us, yet what He does, He does from a position of deep, deep love for you, His child. We sing that hymn from time to time, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face, and it's true. Even when the darkness of the clouds above us and around us is at its worst, above them the sun still shines. Clouds have an important work to do, but the sun shines above them just as brightly as ever. And evidently, we need the clouds. We need the afflictions. We need the testing and the trying and the stretching of our faith that hardship brings. But all the while, dear flock, remember this. The clouds only hide God's love from your view. They do not hide you from His. Indeed, according to the prophet Isaiah, when we're afflicted, God is afflicted with us. He hurts when we hurt. According to the writer of Hebrews, we have a perfectly sympathetic Savior Like Joseph's brothers had his heart, you have God's heart. His love for you goes beyond anything you can know or imagine in its height and depth and width. When it comes to you, His children, He does nothing, nothing, but that He does it out of love for you. It raises another point on the side of God's providence, a third point. There is a perfect plan for His people, for you. Though so much is hidden from your view, everything is plain to Him. He sees all, and what is more, He does all things, and He does them all well. Joseph had a perfect plan in mind. Joseph was directing all of these things according to his own script, for the reconciliation, for the healing of his family. It certainly was rough, wasn't it? It was some really rough going for Joseph's brothers. In the meantime, Joseph was gruff with them. He put his brothers through terrible tests and trials, prison and holding one hostage, as it were. But he did not do so capriciously. He didn't do these things on a whim or on a fancy or just for the fun of it. There was a master plan behind it all. So it is with God. Much more could be said about God's side of providence, but we have another side to consider. Second, then, consider our side of God's providence. First of all, Know this, we cannot tell what God is doing. Most of the time, you will not understand what God is doing in your life. We have a word for these ways of God with us. It is inscrutable. Inscrutable, which means, quite simply, that we cannot comprehend what God is doing, nor why. Joseph's brothers couldn't understand the mind of this Egyptian. They couldn't comprehend the the meaning behind the events they faced, nor even how they were related to each other. They were on something of a roller coaster these days. One minute scared that the Egyptians wanted to take their donkeys. The next, comforted by the words of the steward of Joseph's home and the sight of their brother. Then, set again on edge by the seating arrangement that couldn't have been merely coincidental. And then, comforted again by the merriment of Joseph's table. And then, consider this from our perspective, they couldn't see this coming, but we can. In the very next chapter, the most terrifying, the worst, most disheartening developments are still yet to come. As they're having fun and gay and merry at the table and drinking their wine and high spirits, terrible things were waiting just around the corner and they couldn't see it. On the heels of their party, while their spirits were still high, suddenly Benjamin is going to be accused of theft they're going to have to offer themselves as slaves to the Egyptians, imagining that they would never see their families again or their father or their homeland. Our lives are like that, aren't they? One day the sun is shining, the bank balance is in the black, we're healthy and strong, things are well. And the next, darkness. Sometimes darkness all around us. And truth be told, it doesn't make sense. We cannot put this piece, this puzzle together. No matter how we try, the pieces just won't fit. Not to our view anyway. And it seems to us like God is is abusing us, he's treating us too roughly. C.S. Lewis wrote it in a letter to a friend, of course. Lewis wrote, he must often seem to be playing fast and loose with us. The adult must seem to mislead the child, and the master, the dog. They misread the signs. Their ignorance and their wishes twist everything. Now sometimes, just sometimes, mind you, we get to see a glimpse of what God is doing, how He is at at work. The brothers saw it, perhaps in in the providence that surfaced as they were seated at Joseph's table in order of their ages. What a remarkable thing, and we're told that it amazed them. And sometimes we get to remark at the pattern of God's doings, of His providences, for just a moment. We can see them even in the lives of our congregation. Some time back, one of the children of our church suffered seizures and ended up in the hospital in the middle of the night. Why? I don't know. But then a second family faced it just yesterday. And the first family was able to give counsel and comfort to the second. And no doubt many of you could supply us with remarkable events from your own lives that clearly have been, could only have been, orchestrated by God. Now, some providences become a bit clearer in, in hindsight. One hot, July afternoon in 1967, a beautiful young woman dove into a shallow lake was left paralyzed from the neck down. It made no sense. Senselessness to those who looked on. No sense at all. But almost 40 years later, we can see that as Johnny Erickson Tada puts it herself, God's purpose in my accident was to turn a stubborn kid into a woman who would reflect patience, endurance, and a lively, optimistic hope of the heavenly glories above. And we might add a powerful, life-changing ministry to millions to boot. And not all of the difficult providences we face will submit to our reason. Not even after 40 years have passed, we may still not understand them. Which brings me to the last point, and that is that though we do not understand the providence of God from our side, yet we must always submit to it, knowing, knowing for a certainty that it is all working for our good. And we know, writes the Apostle, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Think about this. Joseph's plan, behind the scenes, Joseph's plan was perfect. And it was set on one purpose, and one purpose alone the good of his family. Their reconciliation, their holiness was his end. Behind all of this gruff treatment, behind the difficult things they faced, behind the the string of events that left them baffled, there was a perfect plan for their good. Now we have that same confidence, unshaken, certain, and sure, whatever it is, Whatever it be, bright providence or dark to our view, it is ultimately, ultimately, it is all for good. Because it is all of God. All of it. Every bit of it. God is always working. like Joseph for his brothers, God is always working toward our good. Toward our blessing. Now we see things in shades, don't we? We see things in shades of light. We see them in shades of darkness. What seems to us to be good things and bad things. A series even of unrelated events. But brothers and sisters, whatever it is, whatever that string of events is, it is all one providence. One single providential plan. And all of it to one happy and holy purpose. Now how is He working in the dark providences in your life right now? How in the world is God going to take what you're facing right now that is difficult for you? How is God going to take and use that for good in your life? I cannot tell you. I cannot tell you. If, if I could, I wouldn't be here. I'd have a very lucrative prophecy business in a big town somewhere else. But I can tell you with what remains of the prophet's office in the pulpit that you have God's own promise. And that is enough. Enough. He sees the whole picture, and what is more, He is directing it in its every tiniest detail, in the burnt toast, in the flat tire, in the number of your hairs that were left in the hairbrush this morning. God is working to the smallest detail for your good. And according to his perfect will for you. For you who are his children. And you may say then with confidence. Thy way. Not mine, O Lord. However dark it be. Lead me by thine own hand. Choose thou the path for me. Smooth let it be or rough. It will be still the best, winding or straight. It leads right onward to thy rest. Amen.